Good evening. It's good to have you guys here with us. We're going to continue now through our series in the book of Romans. And the last two weeks, we've just been setting the stage, getting ready to actually talk about the book itself and go through it. And the reason we spent the time setting up is because it's important that we have the right perspective. We've talked about the worldview. What was Paul's worldview? Because what you see or how you see things dictates what you're trying to say. And if we don't have the right worldview, then we could come to the wrong conclusions. And many times what people do with scripture is look through their worldview This is how I see the world, and so I'll interpret what the scriptures are saying according to how I see things, instead of how Paul was seeing them, and then we can come up to some erroneous conclusions. We've talked about what the theology was, the importance. We've talked about just the understanding, the monotheism, what that entailed, that hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. But what did that mean to Paul as opposed to what did that mean to the Greco-Roman world that Paul was addressing? Because in their view, there was one God too, but their idea could have been a Stoic or Epicurean philosophy where, you know, everything is God and God is everything. Well, that's one God too, but it's different than the monotheistic God of the Hebrew, which was a God who was a creator and a God who was dynamically involved, responsible for, and holding accountable the creation. And so we talked about those things. We, we talked about how important that view is. We also talked about God setting us apart this people, that God was setting apart the nation of Israel and that it was a real important part of his understanding that God had set apart a nation for his purposes, but has also now dealt with the fact that that nation was in exile. Exile meaning that because of their sin, because of their disobedience to this God they believed in, that the Pagan nations were now overseeing them, overruling them. That had happened throughout their history and was taking place at the time that Paul was writing these things, which led us to this eschatology, the study of the last time where God was going to deliver them from the exile and establish himself as the true God again, saying, see, I have always been the right God and you nations who were you know, oppressing these people. Now I want you to see that I am indeed the true God. But that didn't take place the way the nation of Israel had in mind. And we kind of need to keep this in mind as we go through the book of Romans because it's going to come into play where God the creator and we have the exile, the nation is in sin and they are looking at the end and the justification which is going to be an important word in this book. They were looking at justification taking place after the exile was over, but we talked about how the exile actually ended at the cross in the person of Jesus and that their view of the end is now found in the person of Jesus because Jesus takes upon himself the role that Israel was supposed to play. 
We talked about him not just being the incarnation, God in the flesh, but being the incarnation of Israel. In other words, he fulfilled what Israel was supposed to do, but he didn't wait till the end of time for that to happen. It happened in the middle of time where Rome is still in power, where you still have the Hebrew nation going about their business, but now God steps in and brings this renewal, this newness of all things. And we talked about the resurrection and we're going to talk about that some more. And so that is kind of what we're setting the stage and talking about. And the book of Romans can be broken up into four different sections and they don't break clearly on the chapters, but we'll kind of sum them up. Uh, Chapters one through four would be one of the breaks. The next would be five through eight. Then you have 9 through 11, and then you have 12 through 16, the conclusion. And what has traditionally happened is people have broken Romans up into a systematic theology that has been through their worldview. And basically, it's been one of uh, reformation. And so uh, chapters 1, 17 through, say, 3, verse 20, is the treatment of sin. God dealing with sin, but then some passages don't really fit into that mold, and so they're thought of as just a side, a digression. Paul's talking about sin, but then he digresses here and talks about some other things. And then chapters you know, 3, 21 through 31, Paul's dealing with the justification by faith. But again, it doesn't all fit in there. And it's almost like Paul has ADHD and every now and then he just can't help talking about some other things. And so there's these asides that take place. And then chapter four is an illustration of Abraham. But it's kind of fragmented, this way of of looking at it. And it's been that way for, I think, a lot of years. And, And I want to present here, and it's not just my view, a lot of what I'm getting here has been talked about. I mentioned N.T. Wright. He's got a book, The Climax of the Covenant, um, that's really an important book. He's got the New Testament and the authors of the New Testament, a couple of books that have been real influential in my reading and and studying not just Romans, but the Scripture, um, as well as other books. People, uh, Erwin McManus went through a series on the book of Romans that I gleaned a lot of what I'm sharing with uh, you from. And so these are things that I just not making up. It's people who I believe have much more insight into this book than I did. Uh, N.T. Wright talks about how he went through the book of Romans some years ago. I forget how many years ago. And what he did is he took the Greek writings of the book of Romans because he speaks Greek. Yeah, that's cool. Um, And he took a board much like this, and he just pasted the entire book of Romans on this board. And for months, what he did is highlighted every time a passage talked about justification, and he would put that in. Or every time the topic was on a certain thing, he would just go through the entire board and highlight those things. And what he found was that these topics were interconnected, that the book of Romans is more symphonic, that Paul is trying to build something, and he'll talk about it here, and he'll say, okay, I'm talking about this, and then he'll continue talking about it here, and he'll continue talking about it here, and really what we're seeing is this summary. In chapters 1 through 4, we're seeing that in Jesus the Messiah, God has been faithful to his covenant 
dealing with the sin of the world and creating a worldwide humanity. A new human race, so to speak, not just Jew, not just Gentile, but this new humanity that is now has, has its identity in Christ. And so chapters 1 through 4, he talks about that, but then the question arises, and the question would naturally arise, well, what about Israel according to the flesh? And Paul says, that's a good question, hold on to it, we'll get back to it later. And so then chapters 5 through 8, Paul moves on to say this worldwide family that is now the true Israel is therefore the true humanity and therefore by the Spirit, the people who God's purpose for the whole human race will be fulfilled and the people through whom the liberation of the world will be fulfilled. And then again, the question says, okay, thank you, Paul, but excuse me. In fact, the question seems to intensify If this is the true Israel now, this new humanity that God has developed through the person of Christ, what about Israel according to the flesh? What about the nation? What about the nationality? What about these people? Are they God's people? What about them? And Paul finally in this kind of crescendo as it builds up. What about Israel? What about Israel? You're talking all these things. What about the nation? And in chapters 9 through 11, Paul picks up and addresses the question that his argument has intentionally raised. He's been pointing to this throughout his epistle, trying to bring it to this climactic understanding The chapters are not an aside. They are actually his whole explanation of God's covenant faithfulness. It's to help this Roman church understand this strange way in which Israel and the Gentiles have been brought together in the purpose of God. And so one of the terms you need to keep in mind throughout this letter is covenant faithfulness. Because that is central to this book. God was faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. So even though now the Gentiles are brought in, and even though we're going to talk about this new Israel, Paul has to address, well, if God is doing something new, how was he faithful to what he had promised as old? How does that take place? And that's something that goes on throughout this book. God's covenant faithfulness, which is focused on Jesus the Messiah, has been acted out in the whole story of Israel. And what has happened in Christ was God's long-term plan for Israel. Remember, he is the incarnation of Israel. And what happened now in Christ was God's intention for Israel all along. So there is no Jewish privilege any longer as the people of God. But on the other hand, they are eagerly welcomed to be part of this new family of God. And we talked about the tension that was there, the racial tension that was there both with the Jews and the Gentiles, and now even the Gentiles towards the Jews, as Claudius had exiled the Jews just previous to Paul's writing of this letter. And so 
they are to be eagerly welcomed into this new family that God is establishing as the church because if they will abandon the pride of race, there is no reason at all for them not to be part of the family of God. And when I say abandon their pride of race, it means to give up the notion that because we are ethnically Israel, that we are better than and exclusive to God. That exclusivity is a problem because what God has done in the person of Jesus has expanded this to the whole of the world. Everyone is now being welcomed. And so in chapters 9 through 11, what we really are seeing is that God is more gracious than you had ever thought. That God has opened the doors wider than you had imagined. That it is no longer just the one tribe, the one people, the one ethnicity. It is now everyone, and God was intending that from the beginning. And, And so these chapters state that God has not been unfaithful to the covenant, but that this is what the covenant has always had in mind. That Israel would act out the Christ pattern, being as it were cast away for the sins of the world. They're in exile. They are dealing with these things and God is going to deal with that exile. He does through the person of Jesus. And then she can come back to the true people of God and the Gentiles will welcome them back. They need to. This is very important that Paul is trying to establish again in Rome his springboard into the rest of the world towards the east and so he's wanting to lay this foundation down and then chapters 12 and 16 are as if god is or if paul has reached the top of the mountain and then he's kind of running down the hill he's been building 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 he gets to the top and then he kind of runs down and the church must now live in this new true humanity united in fellowship united in mission And so what Paul is trying to do, again, is start a new colony of a new humanity. And we talked about this last week as well. We can't lose focus of what he's trying to do here. It's incredible. He is uniting the whole world. In spite of the racial tension that is there, in spite of the problems that are there, God is doing something new. And so that's what God has been doing. And as he does that, we recognize these things. And so in chapter 1, we're going to start with the first 17 verses and look at those and talk about those. So turn to Romans chapter 1. Say, finally, we're actually going to read it. Verses 1, and we'll read all the way through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how, I con- how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As Paul starts out, this is the longest introduction to any of his letters. And this is one of the longest letters that he's written. But he always tips his hat at the beginning. When he starts writing his letter, he's giving a little uh, point of direction where he's going. If he's talking to the Galatians, Galatians, how quickly you've soon been deceived. Who who has bewitched you to, to quickly fall from what you've believed? Or if he's talking to the Philippians, you know, it's with great joy I'm writing, you know I'm in prison and these beginnings kind of point the direction of the entire letter, the entire epistle. And the same thing is happening here with Romans. And so in these 17 verses, we could actually break them up into a a few parts. And first we're going to take verses 1 through 7. And in verses 1 through 7, it's the message of Jesus, the Messiah, that is revealed in God's covenant faithfulness. He starts off just with his statement about himself, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so this is a statement of faith. It's a statement on the content of the gospel in verses 3 and 4 regarding his son, who as as his earthly life was a descendant of David, pointing us back to Israel, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And one thing that we need to notice important about this is that the gospel is not justification by faith. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. The result of Jesus being Lord is the justification by faith. But the gospel is Jesus, not that you will be justified by faith. The good news is that Jesus is the Lord. Remember, dealing with the Roman world, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the emperor. Caesar is the one who is in control. And now Paul is saying, no, Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel. This is where everything changes. This is where you can now be justified by faith. But the gospel is about Jesus. 
who Jesus is, his work, all those things are connected to them. And so it's important to recognize that that's what he is drawing us to. The gospel is that Jesus is now Lord. And then he talks about his statement about his mission, what he is there to do, how he is there to call all Gentiles to obedience, to come to the faith. And you also are among them to become or to belong to Jesus Christ, to become a part of this new humanity, the new king, the new Lord. So he's calling everyone to this new humanity, this recognition of Jesus now being the king and no longer just Rome being in charge. And so this first introduction is this call to them. The message reveals God's faithfulness to his people through Jesus, that he is bringing them there. And then he goes on in verses 8, 15. The salvation is meant for all who believe. It's for the Jews to them, to the Greeks, to them. And he thanks God for them. And he goes on this introduction, how he's longing to see them, but he hasn't been able to, but he plans on getting there. And I'm not going to go in depth into all of that because I want to get to the last few verses because I think those verses are really the most important thing that he's coming to point to in this first introduction. And that's verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17, leading up to it in verse 14, he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Obligation to everyone. Why is he obligated to everyone? Because he's part of a new humanity. These are things that he's leading into, both to the wise, to foolish. That's why I'm so eager to bring the gospel to you in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's not something I'm going to put down. It's not something I'm going to hide behind. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's real important that we see from the get-go that Paul is being very inclusive to everyone who believes, not just to some not just to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, not just to the elect, those who choose to believe, to everyone who believes. And when he says to Jew first and also to the Gentiles, it's important that we understand how he is saying that because otherwise we start to segregate. To the Jew first, well, Jews have priority. And then to the Gentiles. But really what he is saying is to the Jew first and in the same way to the Gentiles. Cranfield in his commentary says, just as to the Gentiles. And so to the Jew first, but just as he did to the Jews, also to the Gentiles. And so there's no exclusivity there. It's not like, well, they're better than. Why does he then say to the Jew first? Why do you think? Covenant. Who did God make the covenant with? Abraham, the Jews. To the Jew first, because that's where the covenant began. Okay? And so it's not because there are better people. It's because God made a covenant. Again, this is mind-blowing. That God would make a covenant, an agreement with humans. That's unheard of in the pagan world. God is up there somewhere. God does his own thing. God is elusive. God is everything, but he's still not understandable. It's kind of, you know, just ethereal. But now this Hebrew 
understanding as God made a covenant with a human being to the Jew first points back to the covenant. It points back to Abraham. And we're going to see if we keep this in mind, the whole book starts to just knit together. Because we're going to see that Paul keeps coming back to, remember God made a promise that he was going to do something? Well, did he do it? Well, let's, I'll talk about that later, but let's talk about this. What about that covenant? It all comes back to the Jew first is pointing to that covenant. The covenant that he made with the people, but that covenant we're going to see is also including the Gentiles because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so he says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, it is the power, the dunamis, it is how God is going to do something amazing is through the gospel. What is the gospel? It is Jesus, is Lord and what that means person and work of Jesus. That is the power of God. And so we have to grab hold of this because this is, again, launching us into the whole book to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, because the covenant was them, and also to the Gentiles. Now, notice in verse 16, it starts with the word for. When it says the word for, it means this is why. And when he says for again and again, it's like he's digging deeper into that subject and digging deeper into that subject. And so he says, I'm obligated to the Jews, to the non-Jews. This is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew, to the Gentile. For in the gospel. So he's digging now deeper for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now it's important that we understand when he says the righteousness of God, what does that mean? Because some translations will say the righteousness from God. And there are some people who believe that what he's talking about is objective. In other words, the righteousness from God is God's righteousness is towards something, towards an object. But it's really crucial to understand in this place, as opposed to Philippians, where in Philippians 3, he talks about Christ's righteousness given to us, where it's for us. This is specifically the righteousness that is of God. It's subjective. It's about the subject, God, not the object, us. And it's important because... From here, he's establishing who God is. And contextually, it fits when you get into chapter 3 and he talks about you who are teacher, do you teach yourself? Well, if it was given this righteousness, now who's he talking about? He hasn't lost his train of thought in chapter 3. He's still talking about God, his righteousness, and then he's going to deal with other things that fit along that line. But the righteousness of God is not objective, it's subjective. It's talking about God himself. And it has three levels of meaning that we want to look at. The first one is definitely the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That God is righteous, that God is right. Okay, yeah, we understand that. But it's more than that. And so I want to look at three things. And the first, again, is covenantial. Spelling is optional. Covenantial. What does that mean? The Old Testament and the word for righteous in the Hebrew is sevak. And it's, again, about God's faithfulness. So righteousness is God's faithfulness. And again, it's faithfulness to his promise. 
It's connected to something. And so Isaiah, when the prophet celebrates the righteousness of God, he's celebrating God is righteous to his faithful covenant, to his promise. And so there's always this going back to God has made an agreement. God has made a promise. God is going to keep his promise. The righteousness of God is that he will do what he says. That he's honest. That he's able to fulfill what he said he's going to do. And so it goes back to that faithful covenant. The Jewish background from the Old Testament or even from the Apocrypha, first and prior, to all these things is all about God's faithfulness to his promise. The righteousness of God is that he will do what he said and it has to do covenantially. Okay, the second level of this is that of the law or the law court. And what the law court is, again, in the Hebrew mind, is you have the judge, you have the plaintiff, and you have the defendant. Okay? But what the law court is, is a metaphor that helps explain what the covenant is about. In other words, the the law court is not the prime thing that Paul is trying to address. It's just something he is going to use to help us understand the covenantal faithfulness of God. And if we don't understand that, then we start getting very legalistic in how we think of this. And it becomes all about the law, but we forget that the law was connected to the promise. And if we separate these two we start to lose the meaning of what Paul is intending here. And so understanding the covenantal position, it's important to recognize that that is fundamental. That the law is metaphorically pointing to what is fundamental in there. In the Hebrew law court, if you go through the judges and see how things play out, again, there's the two parties, the plaintiff and the defendant. And it's the judge's job to listen and decide Who's right or wrong? The plaintiff comes and says, yeah, this guy stole my goats and sheep and, you know, he's wrong and he owes me this much money and the defendant will give his argument and said, no, they're my goats and my sheep. They were on my property. He just thought they were his and, and so he's wrong. And then the judge has to say, okay, I will make a decision. The judge's job was to make correct judgment without prejudice to defend those who were weak, those who didn't have the means still had the right. And so the judge's job was to act according to the law, that is, do what is right. It was to act impartially, and it was to help the helpless. And not only that, it was to punish the evil. So if the guy did steal the goats, hey, you have to pay them back. And if the plaintiff made a false accusation, then you're responsible for that false accusation. So the judge's job is not only to find out what's right to defend and do things correctly and impartially, but it's also to bring justice and punish the evil. So how does that work? It's God who is the judge. And again, remember throughout the history, Israel was under oppression from the pagan nations. 
And so the pagan nations are ruling over Israel and it's God's job to defend Israel, to take his role because he is in agreement and covenant with Israel. And so the idea of the law in this place goes back to this idea of God. You are our God. You're for us. You're not going to leave us in this world. You're not going to leave us here in Egypt and abandon us because you made a promise to us. Deliver us, God, from these people. Hear our cry. Or it's in Babylon. God, hear our cry. You're not going to leave us here in Babylon. Remember, judge righteously, O God. What is he talking about? God, you see the oppression that we are under defend us do what is right why because you have promised and so this idea of the court is pointing to god but god is now the judge who has made the covenant with his people and the reason god made this covenant with israel was so that he could deal with the sin of the world we talked about this in the first two talks The reason they were in exile is because they sinned, because God made the promise with Abraham. Put A for Abraham here. What was the promise to Abraham? That through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed, right? That was God's promise. Well, when they're in exile, how can God bless the nations through them? Their sin stopped them. Their disobedience to God prevented the blessing. And so God has to deal with that sin. And so the reason he made the covenant with Israel was so that they could be the blessing to the world and deal with the problem in the world. But now what do you do when you're part of the problem? How do you deal with this mess? And so the covenant is how God is going to deal with and heal with the mess of the world. I made a promise I need to deal with this mess that everything's in. And so the righteousness of God is that God is going to take the place of a judge. He is going to do what he promised to Abraham and deal with the sin that is in the world. That's what the righteous God has to do. He has to deal with these things. And so the righteousness of God isn't talking about God giving us his righteousness. It's talking about who he is. How is he going to do this? Well, again, the law court picture. God is going to sit as the judge. He's going to vindicate his true people, the true Israel, whoever those true people are going to be, and put the world right. That's what the judge needs to do. But they're here and the world ain't right. We're here and the world still ain't right. So what's God going to do? The world is still in a mess, but God is going to work with this. And so we have to kind of leave this here because we're going to deal with this as the time goes on in the story. God has to deal with the world and the world is still a mess. The third level of this righteousness of God has to do with the end time, the eschatology. It is something that God is going to do and he's going to do it through his people. So where he was going to do it through the nation of Israel, he is now doing through this new humanity. God is working. And so Jesus says things like, you are the light of the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about setting up this new humanity. You are to show the world around you who God is. I want you to go and preach the gospel to all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What are we doing? We're bringing them to the understanding of this new creation, this new work that God has done in us. And so what would happen when the judge would find something in your favor? It means that God is declaring you as justified. And so we come to this idea, the righteousness of God, okay, is revealed. That word revealed is the word apocalypso. It's the word revelation. The righteousness of God is being revealed. And it's important that we recognize that this righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so this word justification is going to be an important word, but we need to understand what it's referring to. Say, well, justification, it's just as if I never sinned. Well, what it really means is that the judge finds things in your favor. The judge is justifying you. Ezekiel deals with this. God will show the world that you are my people. How is God going to do this? In Ezekiel 37, he's going to raise them from the dead. What? What does that mean? It's a picture. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to let everyone know that you are my people. Resurrection of the dead, restoration of Israel, return from exile, forgiveness of sin. That whole package is the law, court, and covenant terms. Justification means those things, that God has seen us as just now. He is found in our favor. We have been forgiven. We have been returned from exile. We have been restored. We have been raised from the dead. And, and so now this terminology, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And we think, well, born again, that's so strange. Oh, yeah, but you see, in the Israel mind, born again, raised from the dead, all these things start to connect together. This new life that God is bringing about, what, what is he stop, talking about? Must be raised from the dead. This idea of baptism, that you, you are buried with Christ and you will rise with Christ. Well, is that just in the by and by someday? Or is that something that is supposed to happen? That's all a part of justification. We are justified. Righteousness of God is now being seen. And the idea of revelation is that the truth that is happening in heavenly realms and its meanings and and depths is now going to be revealed to us on an earthly realm. What God is doing in heaven is now being understood here on earth. What God has been intending and wanting to do, what God's plans are, are now being understood unfolding and discovered here. The whole idea of revelation. It's now becoming clear to us. In the gospel of Jesus, God's covenant faithfulness, his righteousness is revealed. The announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord functions to the whole world as the apocalyptic event, the revelation. 
This is the apocalyptic event. This is the revelation of God. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, it's all talking about what God had planned and promised with Israel and how he's doing in his people. And it's unfolding to them. The veil of heaven is rent, it's torn. The whole world can see the salvation of God now in the person of Jesus Christ. This God has been in covenant with Israel and has brought the covenant to its fulfillment. This set the course for the whole letter. And if we don't hold on to this understanding of what Paul's doing, we'll go on all these side tangents. The church is God's new humanity to bring about God's agenda for the world. Okay. Now, I've given you kind of like, okay, this is the meaning of these passages. And so when I'm studying and I start reading and I start reading all these things and say I come here on a Sunday morning or even on a Wednesday and I'm going to talk. I don't know if I just bored you or not, you know, with all this information or not. But then I always have to ask, so what? And what I want to do whenever I study is to try and say, okay, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to us? How do we take this and how do we make it useful? Because what good is information if it's all just here, if it's all just intellectual? And so, yeah, I can impress you that I read other people who are smart, you know, because that's what I'm doing. It's like I'm talking about things that I've read about that I think are, you know, brilliant and that I think are important. And, and it sets the tone for all these things. But you see, one of the things that I would do in understanding this information if I was going to springboard into just talking about it in ways that are very easy to understand and applicable in our daily life, it would be that God is inclusive. That what God is doing is reaching out to all of humanity, to the Jew and to the non-Jew. And the righteousness of God is being unveiled, is being revealed in the person of of Jesus, that the goodness and the holiness and the magnificent of God is all connected to a promise that he made to people so that everyone could be blessed. That we would recognize that what God is wanting to do is make us part of this new family that he has established through the person of Jesus. And the moment we start becoming exclusive, we start becoming like the Jews or like the Gentiles were at that time to the Jews, the Jews to the Gentiles or vice versa. The minute we start doing anything like that, we start destroying the intention that God had from the beginning. God made a promise that he was going to bless the world. He made the promise to Abraham that through him and his seed, the whole world would be blessed, but they couldn't do it. They sinned. They were in exile time and time and time again. Well, how is God going to fulfill that promise? He made the promise to Abraham. Was God a liar? Good question. We'll talk about that again more because that's what Paul does. And so you have to have a delayed gratification in the book of Romans because we're not going to get there fully until chapter 9 and I can't spill beans all now because that wouldn't then we'd be done. Okay, we go home. That's it. So, in understanding these things, the points that Paul is trying to make is to bring unity. 
to bring understanding, to help them understand and see these things that are taking place. But recognizing that this faithfulness begins with God. The righteousness is that of God. Righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so what he's talking about here, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous, those who believe in God, are going to live by the things that God has said and trust what God has said. What has God said? That he is going to do just these things. It's not just that God's a nice guy and he's going to let me go. No, the judge has to do what's right. And he did. He dealt with the exile. He dealt with the sin in Jesus. He fulfilled his promise in those areas. Are there any questions on these verses? You're all looking at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) Maybe, maybe I am. No questions? Okay. Next week, we're going to talk about, I think, an important subject. The next passage really goes all the way to chapter 3. I don't know if we'll, how much of it we'll be able to cover yet. But it deals with sin. But he doesn't deal with it as the sin of all men or sinners. All sin and come short of the glory of God. We heard that verse. But he's actually pointing back to Genesis and creation. And so read... At least, you know, again, you should be able to read the whole book of Romans in about an hour or so, okay? So maybe once a week, try and read the book. But if you can't do it between now and next week, read at least to chapter four. Read all of chapter three. And then ask yourself some questions. What's he talking about? And try and keep this in mind as you're reading it. What is he talking about? This faithfulness, this covenant faithfulness, because that's underlining everything, okay? Well, hopefully this will help us understand, okay? Hopefully this will help us understand because that's what a lot of people read the book of Romans especially and say, oh, that's an aside. I guess that means this. Oh, okay, let's talk about this. But there's really an underlining theme. He's really being very intentional about everything he's writing here. He's not just, ah, I'll talk about this, I'll talk about this. He's building to a point and it's very specific. Paul is going to deal very specifically again over and over again with, well, what about Jews? What about the Jews? What about the Jews? But I think we cracked the door open here when he said to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In other words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to everyone who believes. To the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles who are included in this new covenant. So, If the Jews will recognize the new family, they are as welcome and eagerly welcome as anyone is into this new family. And Paul says you need to welcome them. Well, again, you're making a big broad brush saying the Jews don't believe. You know, it's like saying the Italians, you know, all pray to Mary. You know, well, this Italian doesn't, you know. Um, and so not all Jews. I have a friend who's Jew and she's a believer, you know. And so you, you can't lump them all in. Now, I understand what you're saying. Just there is the nation, but um, God is always working. And God is always reaching out to his people. 
And we will talk later on about, well, then, you know, there's going to be at the end, is this whole flood of Jews going to come back? Paul talks about that. Or does he? We'll get there. Because I think we've heard a lot of things. And again, our eschatology, our study of the last times has been set by our view. And sometimes that view is looking through a different worldview that's skewed. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, no questions? Well, let's close in prayer. Oh, you do have a yeah, I'm not fam- yeah I'm not familiar with that or the notes on that one. I know that translation-wise, the New International Version really has some problems in the Book of Romans, and we'll get to those. And I love the NIV; it's easy reading. Okay, um, but there are some areas where we'll get to, and I think even in the earlier NIV, it would say the righteousness from God. And this does your translation say that? The newer New International says the the righteousness of God, okay? But that whole idea is one that, again, you know, it's tough when you're translating, you have to have some framework that you're coming from. And so when they have a framework, well, he's talking about the righteousness that comes from God. Well, the word that's used there is not the word from, it's the word of. And so they actually changed it in the newer version, if, the, if you look at like the English standard or the uh, revised standard, it'll say the righteousness of God. And then in chapter 7, the New International Version is just terrible. Um, but we'll talk about it. I mean, it's terrible and because they're trying to help, but I think they, they're coming from a viewpoint that actually makes a lot of problems. No translation is perfect. You know, every translation has its issues, but we can still hear the Master's voice through them. You know, and so what's important is being able to understand and read. But as we start going in and studying, we'll start nitpicking some of those things and saying, okay, this means that. And usually I'll share those things like on a Sunday morning. I might not go into depth like when we've talked about Romans 7 and it says, you know, um, the sinful nature. You know, the word doesn't say nature. It just says, you know, flesh basically, incarnate. It's just the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. What is he talking about? And chapter 7 is really interesting because who is Paul referring to when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who is he talking about? How is he seeing himself? Anyway, that's something to look at. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I thank you again for this book that is powerful and how it has changed the course of humanity. Lord, the things that you have done in the lives of your people throughout the ages as they've read this book, Lord, we pray that you would do those things in us, that it would launch us into this new humanity, that we'd recognize, Father, the opportunity that we have, the power that is available to us who believe because of what you have done and who you are. Lord, may we embrace these things and may we grow in them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.